0: Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it
1: out. Doo-doo. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz.
0: Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Connolly with the HarperCollins Library Marketing Team. And it is my great honor today to be interviewing Mr. Neil Stevenson, the New York Times and revered best selling author of Cryptonomicon, Snow Crash, ReamD, Seven Eves, Rise and Fall of Dodo, which you co wrote with Nicole Gallen, amongst many, many more. Thank you so much for joining me today, Neil. It's good to be here. So your next novel, Fall or Dodge in Hell, is coming this summer, and it's a sequel of sorts to your 2011 novel, Ream-D. Could you kind of tell listeners what the novel is about and how it ties to Ream-D?
1: Yeah, it's not your uh, ordinary sequel. It uh, takes us off on a pretty wild tangent from uh, from the end of Ream-D, but it involves uh, a few of the same characters. So at the risk of spoiling the first couple chapters what happens is that the main character, whose nickname is Dodge, dies during a uh, routine medical procedure. And somewhat later, his brain is scanned and he is brought back to digital life in the cloud as part of an experiment on disrupting death. And so the uh, the book follows a kind of uh, two-track storyline where uh, one track is techno-thriller type a story that's set in, uh, in the world we all live in. And the other track is detailing the adventures of the digital reincarnation of Dodge in the digital world.
0: And the timeline is really interesting. And You've spoken before how your novels are usually, you know, they're, they're more than one novel. They're usually like three novels built into one overarching story. But one thing that I found really striking early, you know, Dodge, he, he passes away, and then they're still working on the technology to get to the point where they can really do a, a quality upload of his mind. But you follow his grandniece, Sophia, and she's with her friends. She's traveling on this road trip across America, and they go through Ameristan, And you describe some of the circumstances surrounding this not so different world from the one we're living in now. Could you talk about that both with, you know, kind of the religious fragmentation and and how people are being fed news that kind of causes a feedback loop? Sounds a little familiar.
1: Yeah. So Ameristan is um, not just one particular geographical region, but it's a kind of place that's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. The boundary between Ameristan and the rest of America is, is sort of uh, surrounds every city and runs parallel to every interstate highway. But I guess to make a long story short, it's kind of me thinking that although we might look down our nose sometimes at regions of the world that are torn by sectarian strife and religious controversy, at any given point, we're only one or two generations out from becoming one of those places. Hmm. And
0: that's an interesting part about this book because, again, listening to past interviews, something about sci-fi or speculative fiction is kind of the hope versus, you know, this dystopian trend that's so popular or at least has been popular. And I remember first reading your 2015 novel, Seven Eves, which I totally geeked out about. I absolutely loved it. But one thing that struck me about that novel was the optimism. You know, the world's essentially ending and yet everyone kind of comes together in this common cause to avoid complete extinction. And with this novel, there's still optimism, but especially with this scene in Ameristan in this very fragmented country, does your optimism kind of fluctuate when you're writing a specific book and you're researching it?
1: Well, I guess the difference between those two books is is buried in your question when you mentioned the year two thousand and fifteen. So <laughs> the the difference yeah. between uh, seven Eves and fall is two thousand sixteen. Um and so uh I I don't wanna overstress this aspect of the book because it's it really amounts to a kind of vignette that happens fairly early in the story. Mm-hmm. And we don't really go back there, but it is an important piece of setting the stage for what the world looks like. And yeah, it's it's not super optimistic. <laughs> in, in in spite of you know, in spite of the efforts that I made with um, the hieroglyph series and so on to um, to try to think about the future and encourage other people to think about the future in a somewhat more positive and optimistic way, there comes a point where uh, you have to deal with the world as it's presented to you. Mm. And I, I think that comes to a front. I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a big
0: occurrence in Moab, the Moab Desert, and it has to do with fake news, uh, such a hot-button hot item do you want to talk a little bit about that without making
1: yeah, it? Yeah, sort of in, in general terms, I'll say that I I wrote that material prior to the 2016 election, thinking that it was super hip and forward looking and maybe a little a little unrealistic, a little over the top. And then after 2016, I had to kind of go back and, and scrape that down to the bare metal and think about it again because overnight it suddenly seemed kind of jejune and uh, and and dated well you do have a habit of in one way or another
0: writing about certain technological or social advancements or if you want to call them advancement before they happen so did you get that feeling here versus you know some of your other novels where that's happened
1: so this book is a little different from some of the others in that it's meant to have more of a a fable-like quality uh this is not me trying to seriously geek out on the technology of brain scanning Mm -hmm. and neural simulation to the same degree of detail that i did for example with rockets in Mm. seven eves sure just because i'm doing a different thing here and didn't want to get lost in the weeds wanted to advance the the human story instead so this is not one that you would look to for super detailed and realistic mm-hmm. coverage of uh brains and and brain simulation but more of a uh more of a myth or a fable and and that is i mean as the story progresses and we do become
0: more entrenched in that really really fun adventurous fable story we spend less time in meat space. And I didn't know if that was a case where, again, I know you said, you know, don't read, don't read into this too much, but essentially what happens in the story is brain upload becomes a far more normalized thing in society. And most people are doing it. Do you feel like that means the real world becomes slightly less important for people as the afterlife becomes this very
1: tangible, attainable thing? Well, there's a, a sort of blend from one state of affairs to another over the course of the the book that I think it, it's hard to to fully answer your question without kind of revealing the entire mm-hmm. architecture uh, of, of the world. But certainly the uh, it covers a long span of time. So some of the characters are something like 100 years old by the time we get to the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the story, most of the characters that we meet early in the book, have grown old and, and died of various causes and made the transition into the, the digital realm. So along with that, it's kind of natural that we spend more time with them where they've been, where they've gone to, uh, and less time in in meat space with the, the, the dwindling minority of characters who, uh, who are still living there. Sure and i think you know we, we
0: talked about the kind of the latter half of the of the book being this you know kind of great fable but you also have the opportunity in the midst of it to write this creation myth for those of you listening at home again dodge passes away they're working on doing this brain upload and then finally you know turning him on you know waking him up and he's the first and he's this you know doesn't really know what's happening. He's waking up, to use your term, to chaos. Did, how was writing that creation myth, and was it challenging in any unique ways?
1: Uh, well, chaos is a thing I've been thinking about for a long time. I used to have uh, dreams about it when I was a kid. Back in the days when uh, we had analog television and mm-hmm. a, uh, a, a television set that wasn't tuned in properly would just show mm-hmm. static and and play white noise on the screen and for some mm-hmm. reason that sort of got into my brain when i was a kid and later on when you read uh, origin myths from from various ancient mythologies there's frequently depiction of of god or a god fashioning the universe making the world out of chaos and so more recently you know we've chaos has become something that mathematicians and scientists talk about. And so I've always been a little bit drawn to the idea of chaos and the idea that something can be made out of, of chaos and that things can revert back into chaos Mm -hmm. over time. So that's definitely a theme that is, is, is addressed over and over again in this book. And you also have a pretty extensive background in game design. So how did that play
0: into this story?
1: Well, I, I don't necessarily think of myself or, or call myself a game designer, but I've kind of been around it enough mm-hmm. to get a sense of what real game designers do for a living and what the engineers who implement those designs do for a living. And it's a, kind of a fascinating industry in that you've got a, a bunch of, of geeks and artists who are, who are trying to simulate a coherent reality, in a way that, that will actually run on real hardware. And so as such, it's subject to constraints on, on engineering. There's only so much memory uh, available. There's only so much processing power that you can throw at the problem. And so both the engineers and the artists have to make thousands of, of decisions about how they're going to simplify the process. Uh, how they're going to get the simulation to actually work uh, on the equipment that they've got—that mm-hmm. is all sort of reflected in the in the book as as the as the digital universe starts out in a very crude form and develops greater complexity and realism as the years go by. And that's always something I found
0: fascinating. in Your work is you know when very smart creative people with huge aspirations and that butts heads with the very real world limitations of what technology is at that moment and you've talked about your love for dungeons and dragons role playing games before and the last third of this book is very much this epic fantasy quest and it's a lot of fun and i'm just curious if you want to talk about writing that because you you know gently
1: poke fun at certain tropes therein it can be a little difficult right now to to just write straight up high fantasy narrative without some level of self-awareness about everything that's that's gone before. It's, it's It can be difficult to kind of play that straight. And so in this case, what's going on is that you've got a world of people who have woken up, they've died, uh, they've come back to life in digital form, uh, and they've forgotten almost everything. They, um, but they've still got certain kind of fractured memories and habits of thought uh, that are reflected in their scanned brains. And so the world that they create is sort of cobbled together from uh, fragmentary memories and just notions that they're carrying in their heads about the way things ought to be. And and part of that is, you know, what did they read? what movies did they see? What games did they play when they were alive? And so all of those things kind of end up being manifested in the, the new digital world that's created, but it's in kind of a mashed up and mixed up form. Well, and like I said, it, it was a lot of fun to read, really enjoyed
0: it. But, you know, one thing I, I think with both creation myth as well as, you know, classic fantasy story is the concept of evil. You know, there's always this great evil involved or behind the scenes and in Fall or Dodge in Hell, we have L. Shepard, who would be considered probably the antagonist of this story. When you're writing a book like this, do you deal with evil with a capital E? Is that something that you, you write, or is it more you're just looking for some, like an antagonist to move
1: the story along? Well, on one level, you do need an antagonist to move the story along, and he's definitely that. But it's. Um, it's it's interesting and and maybe useful to think about where do we get the idea of evil where does it come mm. from when you see sauron in the lord of the rings or some other kind of legendary bad guy you at some point have to start asking yourself what motivates these people you know i mean just i don't think most people just get up in the morning and say i'm going to be evil today so even, even Sauron uh, has got to have um, some kind of a plan or some kind of vision of where this is all leading. And there have been some really interesting takes on the Lord of the Rings mythos, for example, in which people try to write stories from the point of view of an orc in Mordor, hmm. who uh, <clears throat> is just a sort of hardworking, you know, miner or a soldier in an industrial economy and the, uh, the elves and the humans are this kind of quasi fascist, uh, you know, aristocratic group that thinks they, they all think they know what's best. So rather than just put in an evil guy Mm -hmm. and have the evil guy do evil things, uh, what I'm trying to do here is, is write a book in which there is that antagonist. There is the big bad, Mm -hmm. but, the big bad has got a plan and a reason for for what he's doing that that isn't necessarily obvious to most of the people who are living in that world mm. and that really does i think you know the greatest villains are generally
0: ones who are not one dimensional just evil doers they they have their reasoning that they can justify to themselves and occasionally you might a little bit of you agree depending on on your personality but i did find him absolutely fascinating one thing, and I, I know we want to avoid getting too speculative here because it is—it's a great, fun fantasy novel. There, at least the, the last third. But when you know we're talking about society, and you know people are slowly—you know—this we're kind of dealing with the death of death at this point. Like people are living, knowing that life goes on in Bitworld, as it's called in the yeah. novel. In the background, how do you? How would you see this? Like you know, do world religions slowly fade away, or are, are people? giving up their normal everyday lives. I'm just curious how you would see society as a whole reacting to the death of death.
1: I think it's a split kind of reaction. I think on the one hand, if you think about it intellectually, knowing that death is, has been disrupted or defeated is a really a big deal. And it feels like it ought to change everything. On the other hand, even though we all know intellectually at some level that we're going to die most people very rarely think about that. Mm-hmm. Most people spend 99% of their lives just living their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I'm actually not clear in my own mind as to how much it would change things. It feels like it should change everything to know that. And yet, when you think about people living their everyday lives, the the changes might not actually be that great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, I mean, there there could have been, you know, a much longer book here in, in which we, we go around and see how all the different religious groups deal with this change. But there's only so much room in the book. And for the reason I mentioned earlier, I, I wanted to kind of shift things over into bit world and follow the characters rather than devote a ton of time to staying behind on Earth and figuring out all of those ramifications. And just to close on this book,
0: fall, which is it's obviously an important word and concept in the book. You have Dodge's death. It takes place in the fall. You have the fall of the internet effectively early in the book. We have the fall of Dodge in Bitworld and the ensuing battle over Bitworld. Both Greek and Roman society and myth play heavily in the book. Both great societies that ultimately fell. And one of the most vital characters in Bitworld is Spring, who embodies birth and growth and life. Is this how you see progress, kind of, as a series of falls and failures or step backs and then the ensuing progress through the ashes?
1: Well, things do tend to fall over. <laughs> I just, uh, we're, I'm in Seattle where, um, thanks to the recent weather, a bunch of trees have fallen over recently and we're all having to drive around them, you know, and, and some of them are pretty magnificent trees, but they only last for so long and eventually something brings them down. Uh, and then new, hopefully new things grow out of, uh, of what's left behind. So uh, the, that cycle of, of fall and spring is something that's kind of encoded into our mythology at a pretty deep level. You know, we've got the myth of Persephone in ancient Greek literature, which kind of shows up again in a sort of fractured form in fall. And so, so I decided to, to name the book Fall and to make it kind of a, a recurring theme just because it kept popping up uh, everywhere I looked. And it just felt like the right thing to name this book. One thing that I found really,
0: really interesting. A big driver for L is, you know, he wants this world, this bit world that's been created by Dodge to be entirely new and entirely fresh and not bound by the limitations of meat space. But really it's this mythology and these stories that have been passed along as humanity has grown and developed, but we're still kind of following the same tropes. And that's what happens also in bit world um, as it's created. And I really find that fight and pull to be very, very interesting, and it's a big driver
1: in the story as well. Well, thank you. It's, it's an old question, and it's a thing that, that Kant talks about when he's taking down Leibniz. So the idea that there are certain grooves worn into our brains that are just inseparable from being conscious creatures, and, and so it's pointless to, to try to think outside of, mm. the, of that box. So I'm not claiming to to have the answer, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Absolutely. Well, that's all the questions
0: I have for you, Neil. Is there anything
1: else you want to say about the book before we close? No, just that I, I hope that, uh, that people will pick it up and, and have a look at it. You know, I think it's a, a fun and unusual combination of techno-thriller and high fantasy that once you get used to the premise, should be a fun read. Fall
0: or dodge in hell goes on sale June fourth of this year. This is Chris Connolly with the HarperCollins Library Marketing Team talking to Mr. Neil Stevenson. Neil, thank you so
1: much for joining me today. Thanks for doing it. Uh it was a fun interview. <laughs>